Are you interested in pedagogy as the agency of teaching and learning? What do you think about radical relearning about how we interact with our environment? How can we learn from children? Stay tuned for answers from Kelly Busher. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? Then this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Kelly Busher, a scholar, education consultant, and breakthrough coach. We will talk about her vision for the future of cities, pedagogy, radical relearning, the need to slow down, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Kelly Busher is an independent scholar, education consultant, and a personal breakthrough coach. She helps organizations across the education sector activate collective critical dialogue to think otherwise with the world. By facilitating robust exchanges within theory and practice, Kelly nurtures and develops research culture within education settings. This, in turn, helps teachers conceptualize what teaching and learning could be. Kelly's recent publications focus on place and materials as relational learning opportunities for children. In 2019, her work was cited as a best practice scenario for children's learning by the Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority. Her book chapters, Radical Collaboration, Flipping the Paradigm on Learning in 2021, and Radical Trust, Attending and Attuning to the World in 2022, are Amazon first international bestsellers. In the personal coaching space, she supports individuals, teachers or otherwise, to transform their everyday lives from burnout to joyful by becoming curious lifelong learners and activate citizens of the now. Kelly thinks with concepts, lives slowly on Jajavurung country, and is cultivating her inner ecology next to a huge eucalyptus tree. And with that, Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. I highly appreciate your appearance on the podcast. Let's start with what does the future of cities mean to you? That's such a big question. But what immediately comes to mind is connection. It's around connecting with or this collectivity and how communities journey together in place and what that might look like. And that's not just our human communities. It's also the more than human and the plants, animals, different species, I guess. So what does that connectivity offer us as communities within urban places? From this description, I understand that currently the city means connection and the collectivity and the connectivity and the journey together for people in place. How does this look like in the future for you? It's interesting. I mean, you could perhaps reply to that by saying, well, is it around like the density of how we live together? I know there's already so many conversations around the changing face of of dwellings and how we need to be denser and We need to be in high-rise buildings and what the sustainability responses to those dwellings might be and how we're living together in those places. So immediately, urban space to me is about going up, I guess. I'm also questioning that the actual concept of what it means to live well together in place. How do we live well with each other in these big communities, in these urban spaces? And what does that look like 
conceptually, what are the conversations we need to be having as communities around how we live well together? I guess it is about environmental questions, environmental precarity, because we are consuming resources, et cetera, et cetera. So that to me is the bigger question around the, like say the physicality of places and urban design. It's a more conceptual question for me about living well together. From your description, it seems that you have more questions about the future than answers. Mm. And the reason I respond in that way is that there are so many conversations already happening in this space and there are some extraordinary, innovative, dynamic, amazing things happening all over the world. And, you know, I'm speaking from an Australian context. I don't know, there's so many fabulous things happening everywhere, but why aren't these happening in bigger ways? Why aren't these what is already out there coming together and being supported by municipalities and councils and cities and all of those bigger planning authorities who actually have, I guess, the power to make significant change because the technology and the ideas are already out there. And this is why I'm still asking questions. Well, how do we actually come together? How do these big concepts actually land with the greater population? Because we can talk or communities of amazing architects that you are and these beautiful communities that you're in, it's already here. So my question is, how are we grounding? How do these come into us? How does these ideas form in the collective consciousness to become? How do we embody these and start activating radical change in our everyday? Which is why I always come back to the question, how do we live well together? And these are really big concepts that I'm continuously grappling with. And it's all sorts of different theoretical frameworks that I draw on in my own thinking. How do we live well together in these places? What does that look like? Do we live well together currently? Or is it only just in a future state, hopefully? I think we live well together in lots of ways already. But I think there's so much more we can be doing to really disrupt our practices of being in the world. So a lot of the time we just do things because we've always done them. Like we do things out of habit. We inhabit places in certain ways because that's how we've always been in the world. So this is again where we... I think there is a really a radical unlearning that needs to be taking place around in how we exist in urban spaces and what that looks like. What does that produce? How do we grow food? How do we provide for ourselves in these spaces? Because a lot of the time we actually don't know, like the average person, I mean, even myself, I've currently got a few strawberries out there and I'm creating a garden, but there's no way I could grow what I need to survive on. And that's quite a sobering thought. So of course we live well together. We have to acknowledge the beauty and the um, generosity and the vibrancy of our world. But there's more ways that we actually, I think, need to be considering deeply. For example? I think, again, like I'm sure you've realized by now, I travel with concepts. 
So to me, it's a radical unlearning and it's a thinking otherwise, thinking in really different ways than we're used to. So what does that look like? What does it look like in our everyday? What does it look like in our education systems? What does it look like in family structures? We've got to shift. We really do have to shift. And um, collectively, how do we activate a radical collaboration? Living well is being in radical collaboration with the world, with each other, with urban spaces. How do we live in radical collaboration with buildings? How do we live in deep presence with green spaces? You know, what are those really rich, deep perhaps unknown concepts we can start to embody that is actually it's going to be producing other thoughts that maybe we haven't thought yet. I mean, yeah, it sounds a bit kind of huge, but I guess this is just sort of <laughs> the way that I think. So I don't have any answers for anything. I'm responding with the world. And I think a lot about this, the concept of thinking with rather than thinking about. So when we think with it's that we're opening up to this beautiful multiplicity and complexity because there's so much movement and there's so many layers and so many ways of being with ideas. Whereas when we're just sort of thinking about something, we might be shutting down possibility because we're, I don't know, it's maybe more of a reflective type conversation. Things are just sort of going back and forth. Whereas when we open up to thinking with, then we're inviting so much more in to our spaces and to our experience, I think. From your description, it seems that you are thinking about an evolutional change, basically, because humans have been good at managing their environment, but you are thinking about probably stepping above this kind of management and involving our environment in the decision process, not just an object, but also as a subject, right? Yeah. For me, it's around the ethics. It's a deep ethical questioning of the world. And I would use the term rather than going above, I would think about that as moving beyond. Because I think why where humanity is in, I guess, experiencing what we're experiencing on the planet is because we've had a hierarchy that the humans are at the top of everything, that the humans are the center of everything. And when we start flattening that hierarchy and thinking, well, we need to start engaging in collaboration with the natural world because we are nature. We're not separate from any of it. And when this human-centric logics and not doing us any favors. I think it's pretty obvious. So let's just ground back into the earth, put our feet on the ground and start asking questions and working together with nature rather than always trying to conquer nature. Because my goodness, and again, this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, that there's so much innovation and there's this extraordinary technology that's coming in and the ideas and the, you know, the systems and structures that are already actually here that are so phenomenal, but why they mainstream, inverted commas. Do you have an answer to this question? Why aren't they mainstream? 
Maybe it's because I think humans don't like change. They're just like, oh, we've always done this, taken for granted practices. We've always done it. So why would we change? This is working for us. Why would I change my habits? I think we're incredibly selfish. I'll go back to that. It's the taken for me anyway. This is solely my opinion. We're so used to doing the things in our own ways that change is challenging. And I know I'm making very big sweeping generalizations here, but change challenges us as a collective, I think. And when certain things have been done in certain ways for so long, then it's difficult to create change. Where does change become easier as we are living in an ever faster changing world, in your opinion? I think we need to just be slowing down. So I talk about this a lot in the work that I do with teachers. And I had a conversation just this afternoon about exactly this. And again, all of this, this is talked about a lot. There's so much out there more and more in terms of acknowledging that things are so fast. Our world is very fast paced. And in terms of education, so at the end of the year, there's all of these expectations on us that as teachers, we need to be providing these certain celebrations with children and doing all these things. And there's all these obligations and requirements for the end of the year and reporting, etc. And teachers don't have the time to be slow with children. Well, they think that. So this is why I'm a huge advocate for slow pedagogy, for slowing down. It's okay not to be doing. I read a lovely little thing the other day just about let's end the year slowly. Let's end the year. It doesn't have to be on a high. We don't have to be have a strong ending to the year. Let's be gentle because, I mean, the whole world relies on a linear calendar. And so maybe this sort of loops back into your question. If we are noticing our days differently, what might that produce? So if we are slowing down enough to actually deeply notice what is going on around us, the tiny things, the quiet things that are unfolding around us, we actually might be able to attune to the world differently, which then might offer other ways of learning about the world and learning about systems and structures and rethinking how we're doing things. Did COVID help with this? Because I would assume that people were closed in their homes. They were there to see the changes in their very, very small environment. Do you see any changes in people's attitude towards seeing our environment more consciously, seeing what changes are needed? Do you see any changes in that? I think that there have been significant changes And that I think that's well documented in a lot of information out there in the world. There's a lot of discussions. I'm sure all the listeners have had their own reflections about that. Of course, there's been changes. The world has shifted in multiple ways. And we've all heard the stories about the canals in Venice clearing up and seeing fish and dolphins coming back in and All of those conversations are well documented. I also think that 
there's been a lot of unknown. And again, I'm going to go back to referencing teachers whom I work with because that's my every day. I think the teachers really suffered in this. I mean, of course, there's been so much challenge as much as it's changes to how we do things and slowing down and connecting with ourselves, knowing that we can work from home, et cetera, et cetera. But there's been a lot of struggle within that as well. I'm coming from quite a, a privileged position where things didn't affect me that much because I was already working from home and I don't have a family and I didn't have to homeschool my child as well as try and work full time and have my office in the closet. Yes, there's been a lot of changes, but actually there's just a lot of chaos now because things have been so extreme and the knock-on effects of how children have been affected and how there's so much disruption and COVID babies are coming through into kindergartens now and there's a lot of social connection challenges with all of that as well. But I think there's definitely been a slowdown and particularly in the work I do and in the way that what I offer to teachers in terms of conceptual thinking and thinking in other ways, as I've mentioned before, that slowing down has completely shifted their whole manner of being in general. This deep noticing and being really present to the very tiny everyday moments has actually made a significant impact. And I think in terms of like the concept of this podcast, that it offers a different way of connecting with place. And that I think is such a monumental way of being. Could you tell us what you teach teachers and what you teach children? I work as a pedagogical leadership coach. So I support teachers and predominantly early childhood or the early years, so early childhood and early primary, to think otherwise with the world and to really activate different ways of being like through that thinking and to really claim their thought leadership as educators. It's not about what I teach. It's more about responding It's about posing and responding other questions to and with the world. And then alongside that, that is the being with children. And then what that, that pedagogical change in teachers activates within children. Maybe at this point, I need to just explain what pedagogy is. <laughs> so in a nutshell, Oh, look, I didn't even know what pedagogy meant when I first did my own study. And I thought, what? Pedawati? But basically pedagogy is in a, a very basic surface level, well, to me anyway, it's the art of teaching and learning. That's one example of what it means. Another layer, again, I think in layers and I really try to activate complexity in everything I do and how I think. So another layer to that is a North American scholar called Deborah Britzman, and she talks about pedagogy as being the agency that connects teaching and learning. So if we think about 
say, a Venn diagram, so two circles that interconnect in the middle. So one circle is teaching and the other circle is learning. And where the circles connect is the agency. It's that active participant in the teaching and learning, how that is activated. But then I'll bring in another layer because as I started to think and learn with pedagogy, I still didn't feel like that was enough for me, those two definitions. So there's a really wonderful scholar who works in Toronto. Her name is Christina Delgado Vintamilla, and she explains pedagogy as living well with the world. So that's where that concept comes from. And that also brings in a lot of other theorists and ideas that she's sort of consolidated into how she explains it. So I talk to teachers in this way that when like pedagogy is not a solo, it's not a siloed thing for education. It's not something that you just step into when you step through the door and do your work as a teacher for the day, and then you're activating your pedagogy, your art of teaching and learning. That pedagogy is how we live well with the world. So I'm currently thinking about how I am a pedagogical citizen in the world. So I'm starting to delve into some of that as a bit of research and how by living well with the world, is part of my pedagogical citizenship, you know, and that's an ongoing, it's like a grappling. These are all concepts that I grapple with, which is why I guess I don't really have succinct answers as such. Rather, I'm just, it's like I'm just talking it out. This is the conversations that I have with teachers about really opening up to complexity in our lives and going back to this idea of this radical, doing things radically this radical unlearning, thinking otherwise. I try not to say the word differently because that can perhaps bring up a bit of tension that, well, if I'm doing something differently than what I've done was maybe not good or wrong because it's not about that. It's about how we're adding. Let's add to ideas. It's not and or. There's not this pluralism. It's like, well, this is right and this is wrong. It's actually and, 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 and we're building, we're multiplying, we're complexifying, we're getting all tangled up. And there's a wonderful image. And again, I'm a conceptual thinker. So then I'm a visual thinker as well. And there's a wonderful Lunig cartoon. Are you familiar with Lunig? I'll send it through to you and you might add it to the show notes. And he's basically talking about getting through our stuff in terms of issues and things that happen. And if we try and fight it, we're just going to get caught up and tangled. So if we try and fight with all this stuff, we'll get tangled. And actually, if we just sit with it, it becomes us and it comes in and out. And he says, it's just us and all the stuff. It's us with our stuff rather than this separateness. And I use that example a lot with the teachers I work with to illustrate the idea of being in relation, which is you start working with Indigenous perspectives and bringing in these Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing. It's all about being in relation. It's relational worldviews because we're not separate from anything. 
and everything we do has an effect on something else in the world. To, to learn with Indigenous scholars and, you know, I'm not saying anything new. It's always already here. It's how we travel with ideas and concepts and where we might place them. Where do we place these concepts in the urban environment? Could you give us some example questions for me and for the audience to start challenge our everyday thinking if we are willing to start this radical learning and open up to new ideas? The first question would be, how do we learn with place? And what does place teach us? I would also think about noticing. So what do we notice together? Like for example, and maybe I can offer this to listeners and give it to you in the show notes as well. I have a free downloadable little ebook that's like a lovely little process to go through that talks about how we can tune in to the everyday and start diarizing or making notes of just those really, I guess, insignificant things that happen or that might catch our eye during the day. Like, for example, just in my own garden, I just notice things and things might take me by surprise and I'll find a big strawberry, for example, like today that I didn't see yesterday, but it's huge. So it must have been there for a while. And I guess what I'm talking about is that thinking with place. So how we're tuning into noticing place more deeply. So when we actually slow down, and this is going back to your question around COVID, I'm sure there's a lot of people who've noticed so many things because they only were able to walk around their neighborhood for a certain amount of time for a certain distance. So they've actually become deeply entwined with their neighborhood. So they have noticed things. So these are the first things that I would start with. And this is what we do with children. We go on noticing walks and we document these days. And over time, over months, over years, you actually gather, you're gathering the data of place. So you're actually attuning to place in a very different way than perhaps you might have before. And that's where children come in because they, oh my goodness, they will show you things that you would never have seen before ever. So if any of the listeners, if you don't have children, find a friend with children and just take children on a walk or you let children take you on a walk and see what happens. And I mean, even your dog, if you go walking with the dog every day, just allow the dog to lead you and notice what the dog is noticing. Walk with trees, start noticing the more than human Let's remove our human selves and look through different lenses and see what we might notice in place. It's so interesting you are describing how children will show us what's new or interesting in our environment. Every morning we have our coffee on our balcony and we notice that one kid just comes in front of our building and then starts counting the pigeons. And we don't understand why, but every morning he counts the pigeons. And we were like, we would never have thought of that, that someone would care about pigeons because we don't like pigeons. But this kid is just there every morning counting the pigeons. It's just hilarious. You know, that's so interesting. Gosh, there's even so many layers just to that beautiful example, because immediately I'm thinking about, well, 
I guess, through your lens as an architect and talking about the built environment, I suddenly thought about, well, how do you, like you're documenting or noticing where the pigeons congregate and do they always go to the same places or how do pigeons move within the space? What do pigeons tell you about environment, warmth, atmosphere, orientation? Do you notice some kind of pattern of how pigeons travel within these spaces? Can pigeons offer you a map of place that you might then overlay onto a schematic drawing and think about something in a different way? Does the child's love of pigeons connect you with pigeons in a different way? Because, you know, a lot of people don't like pigeons. They're called the rats of the sky. But actually, let's connect with pigeons as a beautiful generative partner in an urban space. And this goes back to what I was talking about with our, you know, the way we've always viewed something, our everyday taken for granted practices. Ew, pigeons are dirty. They poo everywhere and they sit on the signs and they make a mess. But has anybody ever looked at pigeons through the lens of community or through the lens of connection and partnership, through the lens of sound? the cooing and the beautiful kind of mating ritual that you often see the male pigeons prancing up and down. So I don't know, there's just so many ways of of looking at things that disrupt those taken for granted perceptions or preconceived ideas that we do have about place, about, you know, what is good and what is not. Like why are pigeons seen as deficit, as less than I don't know, a magpie or as less than a lorikeet. And this is what I mean, asking other questions of the world. And your questions were just amazing because in my education as an architect, pigeons are the thing to keep off our buildings. That's the design aim with pigeons, or this is what I learned. For example, it's really interesting that I cannot answer your questions. I can say, on the other hand, that, for example, pigeons, and I assume some of the other species, can very well show the human behavior. So for example, we know that our neighbors love to feed pigeons. So that's why we have a lot of pigeons. So that's also a very interesting side of how we interact with the environment and how the environment reflects our behavior back to us, even if it's not conscious from our side, but it does reflect our behavior. Well, absolutely. Like this is such a beautiful example of thinking otherwise. I'm just recalling a presentation, like a seminar that I saw a number of years ago now by a magnificent professor of early childhood education. Her name is Veronica Pessini Ketchabor. And she's the professor in London, Ontario. And she was talking about when she was in Vancouver, I think, an early learning center where there was a family of raccoons. And raccoons are seen as a vermin, especially in, say, an early childhood environment where there's really significant regulations around safety. And the poo of raccoons is toxic. 
So the easiest thing to do would have been to call the pest people or the council to capture these raccoons and relocate them. However, there was this really deep unlearning and thinking in other ways as to how to live well with raccoons in this place. So the teachers created some strategies to do exactly this. So one of the strategies was the teacher at the beginning of the day, they did a yard check to make sure there was no raccoon poo anywhere where children could be in contact with it, etc. And all of these certain things that they did, they put in place to actually allow, inverted commas, allow, because that's like our human we're the authority, so we're giving permission for the raccoon to be there, but to live well with raccoons. So yes, it took more effort. Yes, there was significant restructuring of thinking, but actually this happened and it turned into a beautiful learning opportunities for children as well to be really mindful of mama raccoon when she climbed over the fence onto the branch to go sleeping, etc. And you know, you could immediately think about uh, possums in urban spaces as well. And possum poo is not very pleasant. I don't think it's toxic, but it doesn't smell very good. And if you think about pigeons, so like what is our responsibility as humans to the non-human world? And say, you know, in your yourself as an architect and say urban planners, yes, you have a responsibility to design that your design doesn't harm or that works with, or you design with the constraints of nature or, you know, rock or contours, et cetera. But how are we actually designing with animals? How do you design with pigeon? Because pigeons are not going anywhere. Possums are not going anywhere. This actually brings me to the work of Kathy Holoko, who's a dear friend and very uh, wonderful artist. She does a lot of work around exactly this, like how do we start designing urban spaces that support animals, big, small and plants, etc., within the cities. So she's got a wonderful project called Wild City and she works with children to actually redesign and create beautiful cities of the future that actually have homes for animals and have the crossings above the roads and Things that, yes, are still in place that have been put in place, but allowing children to really dream about how they would actually design cities for everybody. And again, we'll give you that information so you can add that. There's so much happening. There really is. I mean, it's almost slightly overwhelming that there's so many ideas and innovations and extraordinary technology that's already here. I guess it's a matter of just gathering and thinking with all of that and this is coming back to the beginning of this conversation like what are cities or urban spaces to me they're a collective they are a gathering place they gather together cities create connection and they also create extraordinary separation and isolation too you know there's always this sort of multiplicity of thinking in the show notes, the audience can find the ebook you mentioned and the Wild City project as well. Let's go back to, and this will be, again, I think a huge question. What does place mean to you? That is a big question. 
lost for words. It's such a simple but complex question, isn't it? To me, place is presence. Place is so many things, actually. It's presence. It is connection. Yeah, I would say connection. Place is connection for me. It's like um, I interpret place in many ways. So place as a thing, it's the ground underneath my feet where I am situated. I think that's a really important layer to unpacking what place means. Place offers a context and a situatedness. And I do a lot of work around that with my teachers. Place is something that holds me, connects me to the core essence, I think, of who I am. And then you can, I guess, respond to place as a country. So place is actually in and with us, but not actually separate from place. So it's many, many things to me. It's multi-layered and I actually have never been asked that question before. So I'm excited by that question, but also quite bamboozled because it's like poetry for me. It's a concept. It's a response, a movement. It's this visceral thing. It's internal. It's external. It's everything. I ask this because these concepts, what you are talking about, seem hard or at least challenging if you want to teach a three-year-old to think about the place. On the other hand, I could also accept that they don't have that rigidity in thinking what we adults already have. So maybe they don't have this hang up on, okay, but what do you mean by place? What do you mean that how do we learn with place? How do we connect with place? So I could understand that a child would be easier to work with these concepts. I don't know if it's around what is easiest. To me, it's about, again, the thinking with, because this is such a complex and multi-layered and entangled way of being that to me, children actually already have everything. They already have all knowledges and it's just about the conditions of learning or as I guess as adults, what are the conditions of place or learning that we offer or that we co-collaborate or support so children just unfold because To me, oh my gosh, young children are just the most extraordinary thinkers. They have this amazing view of the world that stops us in our tracks. It stops me. It shatters everything in me sometimes to hear a young child talk about something. They are the philosophers and the theorists and they have and hold so much. And we really should be listening to children and giving children a place in these big conversations because we forget or maybe we don't even realize how extraordinarily competent and capable children are. And again, I have conversations like this every day with teachers, with my students, that when they start thinking otherwise, when they start asking other questions to and with children, to and with place, they are totally flawed with some of the responses that children offer. I have teachers who've been teaching for, I don't know, 25 plus 30 years who have experiences where they are like, I mean, I knew children were competent, but 
oh my goodness, this has shown me that they are so much more intelligent and competent than I ever would have imagined. And as much as that's a really exciting moment, it's also incredibly devastating because children are actually not seen as being capable to offer their thoughts and to be present and capable in the world to offer ideas to society. Children are just waiting to become adults, aren't they? That's all we do is we just grow them up so they can become adults to contribute to the world. Oh my goodness, I'm so passionate about this. Children's ideas, children's voices are what we need in the world. So give me three and four-year-olds any day, (laughs) quite frankly. Kelly, thank you so much for your answers. And I highly, highly appreciate that you were willing to go with my diverting questions from the original ones. So I highly appreciate that you were rethinking these ideas. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? I guess I request that perhaps you go out outside into your place, wherever that may be, whether it's an urban place, whether you are an apartment with a balcony, whether you have a garden, whatever that might be, and choose to notice the world in other ways and ask yourself how you might respond when you do notice. Ask yourself how place might teach you to do other things and start asking better questions of the world because, I mean, it's exciting out there. (laughs) You know, we don't have to know answers to anything. We can ask better questions, but we don't need any answers. (laughs) I could ask you for hours about Reggio Emilia, materials otherwise, opportunities and strengths, but I want to be respectful of your afternoon. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kelly, for your time today. You're welcome. We could definitely talk for hours and we haven't even touched on materials. But anyway, we'll just stick with the pigeons. (laughs) (laughs) For now, maybe in the next round. (laughs) Yeah, been really lovely. Thank you so much. It was really interesting to hear from Kelly about relational worldviews and her understanding of place, not to mention her questions prompting us to relate to our environment in a different way. Please do let me know how this exercise went for you. Kira Leung in episode 12 talked about how design can help people to enjoy places better. You can find out more about Kelly online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Kelly's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?